I have a huge privilege to introduce my friend Brandy Miller. And um, I told her I was going to embarrass her just for a second. So Brandy and I actually went to high school together and middle school. And my first memory of Brandy is when we played clarinet and we sat in band together, actually. And I was telling her on the phone this week that my memory of her is just that she always made me laugh and smile. And I just always genuinely felt good. When I talked to Brandy, like I never walked away and didn't have fun or um, just felt that feeling of a good human. And so as she has done amazing work, she has published tons of articles. I've given her a hard time about it, about how much she's published now. And um, as adults now, because I, I don't know, high school and college happens and I feel like I lost track of what had happened to Brandy. She went to William and I went to college somewhere else. And then all of a sudden one day she was sitting at this conference as a writer and I was like Brandy I know you we went to high school together and um so it's amazing now whenever Brandy Miller's name gets dropped because I just go back to Brandy and us playing clarinet and I was terrible and she was pretty great so uh nothing there has changed Brandy does work with InterVarsity. She can tell you, I want to call her president, but she has her own title of like justice program advocacy. She can say it better. She has a podcast, lots of writing. Brandy, thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's just such a privilege. I know that you being in Seattle, being on Zoom means that we can do this. And it's like we're in the same room. So yeah, thank you. It's such a gift. And, and I love Cascade. I have friends. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny to have, like, you being there with friends that I met in college, so it's very strange to be here, here Small world. Small with world you life. all in whatever ways um, that I can be. And it feels kind of strange to be preaching or whatever when it seems like from the stories you just shared about the graduates that they're preaching plenty with their lives that words seem a little bit, um, I don't know, fickle or something, but I will try my best to honor them by uh, doing something worthy of their time in life, too, you know? Um, so yeah, you said, like you said, I live in Seattle, which is the traditional land of the Duwamish and Coast Salish people. Um, and yeah, again, I'm just glad to be here. Um, outside of the pandemic, I direct justice programs for Christian college students to explore whole life discipleship. So helping their faith and justice not be separate things, but intersecting and holistic things for them. And I know that it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, that this is a complicated, challenging, and super exhausting time to be alive. You know, if you haven't heard, we're in the midst of a racial uprising during a global pandemic under a particularly corrupt political reality. Then alongside that is whatever normal is in your life. I know some of you have had babies. I know some of you have quit and started jobs, have had mental health crises, have had relationships start and relationships end. And if you're anything like me, this time can feel like a character pressure cooker with this particular context bringing up some of the best and worst of who we are and leaving us to do something about it in the quiet of our own homes if you're like me, who is happily single and childless, and in the chaos of your own home if you are a parent. And some of us are realizing in this time how tired we are, how much this time has taken out of us. And it feels like to me that the days go by slowly, but the months have gone by really fast, and I'm hitting the limits of my own human capacity. Many of us may no longer have the internal buffer that we used to have to regulate our feelings, and we may be using coping mechanisms that we're not super proud of. And what makes all of that particularly brutal is that as a community like Cascade, you may want to do, you, I know that you all want to do the right thing and to do good in the world. You want to learn and donate and march and love your neighbors and care for the environment. You wanna reconstruct your faith in a healthy way. You wanna find God in the chaos of it all. 
So today I want to talk about some activists and heroes in scripture and posit that their example of being and becoming good ancestors and elders gives us a model for how to be sustainable bearers of good news, true justice, and real freedom in the world. And so as we start, I actually want to hear from you a little bit. I know that you all like to interact with each other and I'm a black person. And so interaction is a huge part of what we do and makes Zoom super weird for me to not be able to have feedback. Um, but who is a person that you look up to as a good elder or ancestor in your life and why? For me, um, my grandmother comes to mind who really sacrificed everything for her kids and for her grandkids and now gets to have the legacy of having grandkids in the world who are doing really great stuff and trying to figure out our lives. And then again, I just think about the class of 2020. Like You all are doing a better job of becoming good ancestors than I know I was trying to do a decade ago. And so, yeah, who are people that you look to as good elders and ancestors in your life and why? Yeah, it's a great question, Brandy. I think of, um, I think similar to you, I think of my, my grandfather um, who immigrated over from Holland after World War II um, and the challenge of learning a new language, assimilating into a new country, certainly easier for him than many being white, um, but still learning a lot about the difficulty of coming to a place uh, the difficulty and privilege kind of holding hands, um, but of coming to a new place and trying to figure out as quickly as possible, how do I make a way in this other country, in this other place? Um, yeah, that inspires me a lot. I was thinking about my grandparents, a little different narrative. Um, I think my grandparents really early on modeled for me um, <laughs> like progressive Christian thought in terms of like, They've always obviously been older and always so much like anytime I thought like, oh, they'll think this, they're like, nope, it's like this. And I just feel like they've taught me again and again and again, like acceptance and love and also just like radical prayer life where mm -hmm. they pray every morning. And it's like the only person who's ever said to me, I pray for you every day that I'm like, you do. I know oh, that's true. That's beautiful. You know, <laughs> it was like this relief. Yeah. We have Danielle Mayfield has thrown in Dorothy Day, uh, founder mm -hmm. of the Catholic Workers. Yes. yes. Uh, and saw that church had principles of social action which could make it easier to do good in the world. Mm. Uh, incredible legacy. Anna Routley said, my grandmother, the kindest person I've ever known, her life was spent serving others as she loved everybody. Uh, Sarah said, two of my elder sisters, Rebecca and Heidi, both work for justice in their own ways and have been so supportive of me when she came out to them which is mm. beautiful work. Katie Allen said my grandma loved... Eight kids? Yeah. Oh, spoiler all. alert. Eight kids. That's what we're about it's to a, say. It's a lot. It's a lot of kids. Keep it's going. great. It's great. Uh, a loud living room. I feel like that was a necessity. You don't mm. have eight kids with a quiet living room. Um, yeah, felt like with lots of noise, it meant to have fun and people enjoying. Uh, Mark Condon said his older brother and sister-in-law. Love yeah. that. I also love um, how even just like us, that you can see on the screen, like our faces light up as we hear the stories of people who are good elders and ancestors. But it's interesting that we don't typically think about that. And so I'm excited to think about that a little bit together by looking at some of my favorite um, good ancestors in scripture. And so we're going to spend most of our short time together in the beginning of Exodus. And I love the book of Exodus because it's a story about the liberation of an ethnic group of people from the hands and violence of their oppressors. It is the story of a group of people being pulled from a toxic imperial reality and invited to dream of a new type of world and community as God intends it, 
a reality where all can be free, not just from enslavement, but to live fully as themselves. And in the beginning of the story, it says that the Hebrew people had become too numerous and that their collective power and potential for power threatened the empire. Pharaoh, who's essentially the king of Egypt, responds to this by enslaving them in the name of national security. Additionally, he tells the Hebrew midwives to kill any male children that they are trying to help birth. So not only does Pharaoh create a system of forced subjugation, but he tries to use the healthcare sphere to guarantee that the Hebrews are dehumanized. Systemic oppression almost always works like that with one system of oppression building on top of another. And so as we're in the midst of Black Lives Matter, it's not lost on me that maternal death rates in Black women are two to three times higher than that of white women. And should they have a medical system that honors their humanity in their lives enough to help them give birth safely, that their babies and children may spend their whole lives being seen as threats. And can you imagine the fear and grief that Hebrew mothers felt as they went through their pregnancies and prepared to give birth, knowing that their sons were mandated to die? I am not a mother and I cannot imagine that kind of pain, but as I see the mothers of slain black men and trans women at the hands of police and white supremacists, I get a glimpse of the horrors that this text points to. And what's interesting about this story in Exodus is that the earliest hero in the story is not Moses, nor is it even God, God's self, but it is a group of courageous women. They are some of the first and most effective, effective activists and advocates in the text. And it's not lost on me that our patriarchal lenses for how we read the scriptures prevent us from seeing these women as core parts of the story. The story tells us that the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, feared God and refused to participate in the systems that were killing their boys. I love that in this narrative that they get names because not even the most powerful person in the story or in Egypt at the time gets a name in the narrative, but they do. Shifra and Pua refuse to kill the children and this reaches Pharaoh's ear. And he calls them in to see him and they make up and rely on him believing an ethnic stereotype saying that Hebrew women give birth too fast and that they cannot stop it. This is kind of awesome. They use his ignorance as a tool to be a barrier between him and the marginalized and vulnerable. They are brave activists and heroes who show up and do their part. And for the most part, they get no credit from history compared to Moses. Who, right, that's twisted because he only, is a, he only lived and became a liberator because of the women that honored his life and came before him. These women are good elders. People who see the plight of their people and do something about it. They use the revolutionary work of bringing life into the world as a way of saving part of a generation of Hebrew boys. They risked their jobs, their lives, and their status to make sure that people after them had a chance to live. But Pharaoh, not to be beat by women who give birth too fast, escalates the situation. He commands that instead of them dying at birth, that the Hebrew babies are to be thrown into the Nile River. Again, like in our culture, violence always finds a new means to oppress and take the lives of those on the margins. But then we respond in the scriptures by meeting three more courageous women and good ancestors who lead the way for God's people to become free. Moses's mother, who is unnamed in the text, refuses to do violence to her child and hides newborn Moses away with her for three months. Can you imagine the fear that she lived with every day as she watched him, hoping that he wouldn't be seen or heard or taken away from her or killed by the authorities? This is brutal. And at this point, and at the point that it was too dangerous to hide him any longer, she crafts a basket that could float in the river. So she indeed throws her child into the Nile, but not in the way that Pharaoh intended. Moses's mother and sister go and they put the baby in the basket in the river and they send him away hoping that he might live and that life somewhere else might provide him a chance of safety. And I think about my friends 
um, who have immigrant stories, whose parents had to sacrifice everything with the hope that life might be better. I just want to honor the good elders and stories, particularly the Latinx community who experienced that pain more than I could ever imagine. Moses' sister, after putting the basket in the water, then stands by the shore and watches her baby brother float away. She stays in the pain of the moment, and she watches from a distance to see what might happen. She doesn't avert her eyes as it would be easy to do. She acts, and then she watches, and then because she does that, she gets the chance to act again. I think that this is core to becoming a good elder and a good ancestor, that we let the character and compassion of God and our love and belief in the dignity of other people sink in so deeply that we live cycles of action and reflection, seeing and responding, hearing and doing in such a way that both we and the world, even our little worlds around us, get to see and experience justice. And providentially, Pharaoh's daughter goes down to bathe at the Nile at this very moment. She sees the basket with Moses in the water and has compassion on him when she hears him cry. It's a reflection of his humanity. And this, honestly, I don't want to give too much credit because it's a low bar. But it's fascinating that when Moses is seen as a beloved baby, even though he is one of those people, a Hebrew, that it makes him worth saving. Pharaoh's daughter finds that the issue is no longer a far out issue of those folks, but about a baby who is right in front of her. And what this tells me is that proximity matters in how we see and honor and believe people who aren't like us. Proximity helps us to believe that people's bodies and stories matter. When we are close to suffering, it compels us to act. And we see that happen here in the scriptures. Moses' sister then being in the right place at the right time because she put herself there, offers to Pharaoh's daughter to find a woman to nurse the child and just happens to find her own mother. His mother probably thought that she would never see her child again. And she probably feared the worst for him. But the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter and the shrewd courage of Miriam to approach a powerful stranger at a riverside makes it so that he not only lives, but that his mother gets to see and participate in his life. Come on. Justice for Moses and life for Moses come because a group of women subvert the power structures of the day to save him. And what I love about the stories of these women is that their bar for justice, compassion, and life is so high that they are compelled to risk their own lives and well-being to save an entire generation of people. It is because of them alone that Moses can partner with God to save them from oppression and enslavement later. It is a multi-generational partnership to rescue and save the people. They have a creativity that's brought forth because they fear God and love people, even children who are not their own. These women set the tone for Moses' life. They see the, they see the need to be good elders and ancestors, right? people who sustain the lives of those coming after them. And we so often forget them in the story. Moses is no independent hero, and he actually has all these flawed character things that these women don't present in any way. He's a person who comes from a legacy of powerful women in whose footsteps he follows. So as I watch activists out in the streets, literally risking their lives, whether at the hands of police or COVID-19, I see an echo of these women in Exodus. I'm watching Black queer women lead the charge for Black Lives Mattering, and we're seeing rumblings of systemic change around the country and around the world. They are seeing the deaths of their siblings and they are saying no with their bodies, their time, and their money. They are like Shifra and Pua. And I see a chance for allies in this story. Pharaoh's daughter sees the impact of an injustice started by her people and when it comes to her, she doesn't abdicate responsibility to someone else, make an excuse about just because her dad wasn't a, is oppressive doesn't mean that she is, nor does she make it about her feelings about the situation. 
She instead takes more responsibility than is asked of her and joins her story to the story of the marginalized. And all of this happens before a single mention of God's movement in the story. God, God's self takes the baton of justice from these courageous women to save the people. It isn't until nearly a chapter later that we see God act or show up at all. And what this tells me is that what we know about God allows us to have a deep creativity and courage that when God uses, that one that God uses to work out a legacy of freedom in and through us and that God joins in as in, in addition to starting. It also tells me that works of God might not look explicit, flashy, or what we would expect. They might not even look spiritual at all at first. But the problem is for many of us, we've been taught to see ourselves as the heroes in every story in scripture. We've been taught to see ourselves as Moses, the one who should step up and lead and liberate. But what we're given at the earliest points in the text is just a group of regular people moved with compassion who become good elders and ancestors. And this season that we're living in right now is a critical time for self-reflection. How will we think about our money, our time, the value that other people have in the world? How will we help our families and our communities become more loving and just? How will we let the combination of a racial uprising, a tyrannical government, and a global pandemic <laughs> shape us? Not into cynical people who can critique all the right issues or the wrong people, but how can we be shaped into people who will leave a legacy for those after us that's actually good? What if we left a legacy where no one has to say Black Lives Matter because we've eliminated anti-Blackness? What if we created a world where there is no need to combat police brutality because policing no longer needs to exist because we've developed better tools than violence and force? What if we left a legacy where reparations for wrongs done were normal because God throughout scripture honors and blesses those who restore what they and other people destroy? If you don't believe me, read the story of Zacchaeus. What if later generations never had to choose between their faith community and their gender or sexual identity because we destroy homophobia and transphobia in our midst? What if we let this time shape us into good ancestors in the spirit of the women of Exodus? In this season, I imagine that we find ourselves caught, if you're anything like me, in a flurry of activity and a multitude of shoulds. We might be acting out of motives that we're not even aware of as we try to engage with justice. This might look like a desire not to look bad or to be the bad silent white person. We may be trying to avoid being called out or tiptoeing around trying not to make a mistake. We might want to look like the woke one or do enough to feel like we have integrity to ourselves and more. And that is all fair. But those motives will likely only carry us so far because at some point activism or, a desire, or our desire to do the right thing will be limited by our character and our lack of resilience. If we are to follow Jesus and pursue God's peace in the world, we need to have a spirituality and a praxis and outworking of that theory that sets us up long-term to be about what we're acting out right now. Right, because real talk, none of what's happening right now is new. It's just popularized, popularized and catalyzed in the death of George Floyd. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful, so grateful for all of the movements, speaking out, donations and more. I just fear that once the peak has passed that we will find ourselves standing on the moving walkway of complicity and oppression that without our active forward movement will land us living outside of the values that we're so loudly and clearly espousing right now. It is a mark of privilege to engage in movements for black lives or for justice for queer folks or, or anything else when it's popular. It is inherently another thing to have our lives shaped by the things that we participate in and live in the mundanity of our day to day. What we're talking about right now 
is simply integrity over the long haul. It is about setting ourselves up to become people who are formed rather than simply being performative. Paulo Freire, in defining praxis or the outworking of theology, calls people to transformation through a pattern of action and reflection. This is the basics of discipleship. We start somewhere in the cycle of action and reflection and let reflection or learning change how we act and then let acting shape us into deeper reflection and then that leads us into becoming renewed people. In Christianity, it's just called the, the process of conversion. We are always in a constant process of conversion toward the way of Jesus. Is that we would be people who hear the word and work of Jesus then practice the way and find it to be true. Being a good ancestor for us looks a lot like being consistent and diligent in our action and reflection and being people who don't settle for a lower bar than full humanity and full freedom for all people. But this is hard because many of us grew up in contexts where indoctrination mattered much more than imagination and our Christianity has created a low bar where doing the bare minimum of what people outside of our walls do is what we settle for. And Jesus in Luke 6 gives us a warning against this. He tells people to love their enemies, and then he says this. This is Luke 6, 32 uh, to 35, if you wanted to know. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend from those whom you hope to receive back from, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is that his followers should not expect to get credit for doing basic things. Even sinners do that. He's saying, if you love people like you, you're basic. If you lend things because you expect something back, that's too low of a bar. Jesus then ups the ante of love and sets the standard of what it means to be followers of Jesus. It is to love your enemies, to do good, to lend, and to expect nothing in return. For a progressive Christian community, I think that it would be easy for us to think that we do good in the midst of everything that's happening right now and that we expect nothing in return. But when it comes down to it, this teaching isn't just about credit. It is, again, about motive. I think in our culture, if we were to reframe this teaching, it could sound like, if you say Black Lives Matter, what credit is that to you? Even Amazon does that. If you march alongside your Black friends, what credit is that to you? Even sinners walk with their friends. If you give your money to justice organizations or reject toxic embedded Christian ideology, so what? You are no better than anybody else. For white folks, especially in this time, it is easy to want credit and recognition for doing better than you did when stuff was happening in Ferguson. But even sinners do that. The bar for 2014 and 2015 cannot be our bar for 2020. So you might be donating your money and becoming an anti-racist for the first time, and that is great. But even sinners do that. I believe that we have set a bar for Christian, and wit Christian witness and activism that is far too low and totally lacking in creativity. It is one that, re that relies on co-opting the best of what is happening outside of us and then feeling good about ourselves for doing the right thing. Even sinners do that. Scripture tells us explicitly to not grow weary in doing good. And that is not something that we can simply will ourselves to do, but something that we have to partner with God to do. For white folks especially, this development of not growing weary in fighting for God's peace in the world will be a challenge. Folks from marginalized communities have spent our lives having to navigate and growing in resilience, people asking us to prove why our lives matter, how our ideologies are biblical, and that this work of justice is core to the person, work, and legacy of Jesus. So you might have some resilience to catch up on. But when it comes down to it, 
most of us don't actually want to do the character work that it takes to become good examples, good elders, and good ancestors. In a social media world, it is much easier to have the optics of a just life and a righteous life than it is to live a just and righteous life. So I want for us to be people who move beyond the hollowness of symbolic faith and justice and instead develop resiliency over the long haul. By definition, resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, and significant sources of stress. Some of you are getting engaged in justice for the first time to a significant degree. You're tired, you're shook, you're losing relationships, or if you were like me six years ago, you're losing ministry support. And to all of you, I say, welcome to the story of being a good ancestor and becoming a good ancestor. This time, if you let it shape you, will move you from a performative ally to a person who forms a legacy of just and holy living, even if just in your family or your local community. Because there is no just to that. It's so good. This is a time to work towards sustainability over the long haul and to not burn out. To figure out how not to just give your money to a few things when you can get credit for it right now. But maybe it's to cap your income at what you need and create means of wealth creation for those who don't have the ability to do so. Maybe it's to create rhythms of self-care so that you can have hard conversations at work, at home, and in our political system without imploding on yourself like a dying star. What if you learn to manage your fragility and your desire for credit for doing the right thing? What if you use this time to develop a thick skin to hear feedback from people, to be able to be a part of this work, this gospel work, this kingdom work over the long haul? What if you received feedback, did your own work, and created change in your spheres so that people like me don't have to and so that people after me don't have to? And to folks of color, I want us to see ourselves in the story of these women in Exodus, to find our ancestors and our people in the story, to remember the people who have raised us, saved us, and risked their lives for us, to find new heroes in the church and outside of the church, outside of whiteness and white supremacy, to learn about people who look like us, and to see the liberating work of God among them so that we can be inspired to be the same. I'm going to pray to us to that, pray for, pray for us to that end. God who is living you, you are good. We worship you in whatever way that we are able to. Would you help us not grow weary in doing good, but strive towards your kingdom and justice. God set us on a trajectory toward being good ancestors in the future, in our day-to-day -day mundane lives, and help us to be good citizens and neighbors in the present. Amen. Randy, you're phenomenal. You're, I mean, I just... I had, I wish I could, I'm going to send you a picture of all the notes that I wrote. I'm like, underline, one-liner, one-liner, one-liner. <laughs> You're like, I feel like her and I both were like, yes, yes. Thank you. Just thank you. Thank you for your prophetic words, your work that you've done for many years, and just being willing to be with us this morning. I'm just, I don't say that lightly. As not a super charismatic human to tell you. <laughs> I know we're a little different in our backgrounds on that. So, um, Thank you. Thank you so, so good much. to be here. Thank you for honoring me by letting me take up space in your community. Yeah, I know, like, all over. I hope you get a chance to go back and look all over. People are, like, convicted and challenged. Thank you, Brandy. Like, what? Mm -hmm. So many one-liners. Even Amazon does that. That was, like, my in-cap <laughs> written down. Even Amazon uh, does that. Yeah, our bar's a little low. Little low. Little low. Thank you. Brandy, I quit. No sermon I've ever heard makes me want to quit more than that. That was incredible. That was a masterclass in effortlessly weaving what is happening right now 
and the faith that we talk about and profess. That was incredible. I'm going to be listening to this over and over again. Every aspiration of our community was just captured in what Brandy said. Thank you a million times over. That was incredible. Incredible. Turns out when we don't to hear that. Turns out when we don't just read Paul that we might find heroes in scripture who don't just capitulate to our nonsense. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) I'm not really a Paul fan. I'm not the right person, but this changed my life. Thank you. So Uh, all right. I mean I know I just want to say announcements. We're gonna do announcements now. Just go share this message to everyone a million times over. That is all I'm going to do on social media. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brandy. Um, 